Hello, everyone. Shout out to everyone who's watching online. I am speaking today from Boston, and we are finishing up 1 Peter today. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, follow along with me. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All right, so in verse 1, Peter addresses the elders, that is the spiritual leaders who are called to be the servants of the church. They were the counselors, administrators, overseers of the people, and defenders of the faith. So note from the outset, there is this establishment of a hierarchical structure in the church, which makes sense because Jesus gave us the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, and for this mission to be fulfilled, you need to have leadership. That is, that is you need someone to work on the Google Docs, help with the schedule and organize rides, in addition to teaching and caring for the sheep. But the fact that you are an elder doesn't mean that you would consider yourself better or more special or more valued than anyone else, because leadership is servanthood. Now notice, Peter addresses himself as a fellow elder. This is notable because Peter was part of Jesus's inner circle. If you remember, he was an eyewitness personally called by Jesus. Now, if anyone can take license to say, hey, I am the ex exception, it would have been him. And yet he demonstrates this spirit of humility. Now, one commentator writes, quote, the humility of those who serve Christ is not merely the absence of pride or the awareness of limitations. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. So we must reject all forms of exceptionalism. That is this notion that I am held to different standards that the Word of God doesn't apply, in my case, just because I have a title. Now, all of us are at best a fellow because we are creatures, fellow creatures, fellow sinners who have experienced the grace of God. And, a, and then it says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So spiritual leadership should then flow from how keenly aware I am of the cross, of the sufferings of Christ. And all that flows from that, of course, that is my sinfulness, the seriousness of God's holiness, and of course, his love. And then it says, partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So that is, if our hope is in the future reward of heaven, then this should end up upending our typical motivational structure. So instead of trying to derive significance from titles, in other words, or how much you accomplish, what is most important is what will happen on the day that the glory will be revealed. Now, a preacher asked, once, when you were born, you were the only one who cried. Everybody else was happy, but that's not what's important. Here is what is important, he says. 
When you die, will you be the only one who's happy and will everybody else cry? That depends on what you're living for, he said. Are you trying to get titles? Bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, doctor's degrees. Is that what your life is going to be about? Collecting titles or is it going to be about collecting testimonies? And then he goes on and on. Of course, that sermon was soaring. So amen to that. He said in the end, will your life be about titles or testimonies? Now, this is part of the glory to be revealed on that day when all those that you have invested in will welcome you into, into eternal dwellings. So let's be sure that our eyes are on that prize, the glory that is going to one day be revealed. Now in verse 2, it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, it's not hard to imagine that Peter speaks from his own experience here of the risen Jesus exhorting him, if you remember, to do the same, feed my sheep on the shores of Galilee. Now, ministry is a shepherding. We, we like to use the word ministers. Every believer is called to be a minister. Uh, the Bible expresses this idea of ownership and participation through the concept of what is called the priesthood of all believers. So all believers are to fully participate. There is no clergy and laity divide. Now, I'm a minister doing it full time, but the key is you are all ministers. That is, you are to shepherd the flock uh, and you ought to grow into one uh, if you're just uh, became Christian and you want to now embrace this identity. So have you ever thought of yourself that way? Because you should. Now, you may have heard of the shepherd sheep analogy, and the more literal among you may not have ever gotten over the fact that you are referred to as an unflattering animal who is skittish and has wool. But, you know, if you can get over that, it's an analogy. And the aspect of shepherding that is most important here is the taking care part. Now, if you remember Psalm 23 is the classic picture of this. A shepherd who provides and protects and points to the path of righteousness, who prods with that rod and staff, if you remember, and then prepares a table, a life of abundance. Now, it's that picture that calibrates us to the level of responsibility and ownership that each of us are entrusted with. Every believer must be moving toward this picture of greater involvement as a shepherd. Now, I know this is harder to grasp, for those of you who've seen church merely as a place to go on Sundays where people largely leave you alone, I know that that was my experience where they will interact with you, but in a perfunctory way, like, hey, how's the family? Okay, bye. But where ultimately they don't care about you. I'll never forget the picture of my mom at home dying of cancer and not a single member coming to visit her. And I didn't blame them. It just made me think, wow. That's their understanding of church, to stay out of people's problems. But we are to shepherd, that is, we are to minister, in that we are to know the hurts, needs, problems of people, and to care for them physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. This is the hallmark of Christian discipleship, which is why we would love for you out there to have that experience of leading someone in that way. And maybe that's why for the college students, God is leading us to youth ministry because you are in the position to influence them because you're a little older and therefore you are cooler. Though some of us older ones like to think of ourselves as cool, but we will, of course, never be as cool. So may you have this opportunity to shepherd this year. And then it says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now, why would ministry be done under compulsion? Well, one reason is if your internal motivation is not out of a personal conviction of the gospel, but because, for example, everyone else was doing it. 
So, so and, and that makes sense, right? Sometimes we do things out of pressure, like yes, yeah, we do. But of course, other times you do so out of a personal conviction. And here it says, as God would have you. Now, I want us to consider for a moment this tension between individual conviction and pressure. Now, is it bad to do something out of pressure when you are not convicted to do so? Well, on the whole, yes. Is it bad to obey when you are convicted, but maybe emotionally you are not there yet? Well, no. For example, I'm convicted. I need to be a good husband and dad. But I remember many mornings giving rides to my kids in traffic when I used to live in LA. Did I feel emotionally joyful? No, to be honest. But I did it because I know that this is what I am called to do as a dad. And that's good. I can't wait until emotionally I am feeling up to it. So the problem is when you feel pressure to do something, when you don't feel individually convicted to do it. So is it okay to have that tension? Yes, it's okay to have that tension, but you will need to eventually work out your personal convictions as you continue to engage in personal study and reflect over the gospel. And by that, I mean, you have to ask yourself, while you're doing all of this activity, is this what I believe? Is what I am being asked to do match up with scripture? And hopefully many of you students attending Vision, you were able to have such times and consequently, this deepened your conviction. So before Vision, for example, you didn't want to do outreach. Like, why am I doing outreach? But now you are and you see why. And, 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 and now you're saying, I do this willingly as God would have you. So I just want to focus on this phrase, as God would have you. Uh, this struck me as very personal and it's because that should be our personal motivation. God doesn't want me to just serve because he, because he needs the work done or because we know it's good for us, like taking medicine. But he wants us to serve him willingly because there's something more that he wants us to see. He wants us to see that it is about a love relationship between us and God. He wants us to do this not because we are forced to or coerced into doing this, or even if it's the right thing to do in my head, but because out of a growing willingness and desire to serve him, that stems from my love relationship with him. Also, we need to remind ourselves that God wants us to live a certain way. To live as God wants me to live is the goal that we should all strive for, yes? I often think in these terms, like how would God want me to live or react in this situation? It's like that inner voice that informs me. Like when I have a chance to be generous with my money, then I go, yeah, what would God want me to do? And then I will buy someone lunch. When I'm tired and I'm thinking, man, it's nice to be in that warm bed, or should I push myself and go visit that one last person to celebrate that person's job offer, for example? Should I give in or should I talk to that one last person? Should I excuse myself from playing sports after TFN because uh, it's cold outside? Now, how would God want me to be? Now, we need to learn to ask, what does God want in those different situations? And, and what, what kind of decisions that would he expect from me as God would have you? Now, the flip side of it is to do so for shameful gain. And it's here it says, don't do it for shameful gain. That is not for illegitimate rewards of leadership. Now, what would constitute shameful gain? Well, here's some examples I thought of, like doing it to check off a box for, I don't know, club involvement on your resume, um, to impress the opposite sex, uh, or to just be seen as a spiritually mature person. Now, we see the fruits of such motivations out there, sadly, even in the church world. People who are enamored by their own gifting and 
then leveraging it to establish a certain brand. Now, particularly apt in social media to make sure that you have, I don't know, X number of followers in order to be an influencer. And Peter says, don't do this. And so in verse three, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So instead he says, be examples to the flock. And the challenge is to be that, exa is that example. Now, especially during different seasons of your life and all of its accompanying stresses. To be an example is hard, especially when you have a lot on your plate for you students out there, uh, a lot on your plate for school, internships, when it, and it, when it affects your future aspirations, uh, as you graduate, when it will affect your free weekends, the discretionary time, after you get married, your alone time together, after you have kids, the effect ministry has on your children. But we are to be examples to the flock in all seasons of life. And this particularly hits me as I get older. I often have this thought, like, I can't slow down. I can't excuse myself, like, uh, just because I'm older, I need to be an example. And so we all need to continually lead by example, never slowing down in this regard, never exempting myself from whatever situation that appears threatening, scary, intimidating, challenging, or hard, and particularly so depending on your busyness level. So it means being a servant. It means concretely participating in activities, for example, even if you don't like it. By my age, you've seen it all. You've gone to many places, you've played many games, and if my criteria of participation was the newness of something, I would never go anywhere or participate. Like how many times have I played King Kong Shower? But of course you wouldn't know that. But I do this because that's my calling, to be a servant. Just do what is best for the flock. Being an example to the flock, in essence, means being sacrificial, doing what you don't necessarily want to do, being the first to clean up, last to eat, last to leave a place, uh, paying costs like fi finances and time. This is what it means to be an example. Now, in verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, I don't know how you receive that verse, be subject to. These are strong words that today's ethos rejects. No one should be subject to anyone. It's, and it's so sad because uh, if you follow that, human relationships will be thin indeed when everyone asserts autonomy, no one takes responsibility for anybody else, and there's no like downward love, no upward respect. And people will forego the richness then in having a mentor, for example, for example, and also the experience of having others look up to you. You will miss out on being ennobled because someone is looking to you as an example and as a model. And for me, ministry has been as much about those I minister to shaping me as much as I was shaping them. And that has fostered the kind of relationships over time that are multi-layered from my mentors to my peers and all those I have ministered to over the years. So the appropriate response to how life is arranged then is to learn to submit before one another, not always insist on your rights. But here it says, be subject to who? Be subject to specifically the elders, Peter says. And this makes sense. To get good at anything, you need someone who's more advanced to teach you. This is the quickest way to learn. Uh, one person being the expert and the other person entrusting himself to that relationship so that the learning and transferring of the character and knowledge and heart can happen. It requires a recognition of authority that you submit to it so that you can learn and improve. Many of you had that experience of coiling cables 
It's like our version of wax on and wax off. Now, if you don't know that illusion, that's okay. Uh, I think that's pretty cool though, that we have mentors here at our church that you can learn from. In almost every arena of life, isn't there like an authority of masters, those who are advanced in their field? Well, we have a designated master class for Christian life. We have a number of spiritual mentors who are well-trained or on the way to becoming well-trained, whose lives are others-oriented, whose commitment is to care for young believers, non-believers, to love them into the kingdom and nurture uh, believers into disciples. Like, take advantage of these mentors. You know, you can just go up to them and go, please teach me, you know. Okay, well, don't do that. Though I know some of you will now. But this contrasts to those who have a different view of Christian life. The thought is out there that anyone can wing it. Like you don't have to know your Bible. You don't have to have your poor form corrected. You don't need anyone with spiritual authority over you. Now, this is absurd. If you look at Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, he exhorts him to know the scripture, to preach the word, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now, I want you to notice the contrast here to our preferred state which is, hey, let's just chill. You go your way, I go my way. We respect each other. It's like that vibe. But scripturally, as mentors, we're supposed to teach. We're also supposed to confront, rebuke, and correct according to scripture. Now, that's unpleasant, and we don't like doing it, but we have to train you to be righteous. That's our calling. And so 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves, humble yourself. And then it says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, now, there is a condition in which you need to humble yourself, to place yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, what does this mean? Throughout the Bible, the phrase, the hand of God, symbolizes the deliverance uh, uh, by God of his people. So Peter is saying then, in essence, humble yourself under God's power, under his protection, and under his authority. It means to not be so self-reliant because, you know, that takes humility because most of us are independent and self-sufficient. But we, to admit our lack and our need uh, and to then humble ourselves by coming to God with our issues, our problems, our anxieties, seeking him for deliverance rather than trying to cope with it on our own. Like, this is what it means to come under God's mighty hand. Now, the problem is it's always hard to ask for help, right? Admit that you don't know this or that, or that you have limitations, or you don't have the necessary resources. So even something small like, hey, what does that word mean? Or I'm having a hard time with school. Can you help me? And, and it's hard for us because it's just a feature of our sinful nature. We don't like to ask for help. It makes us feel diminished and weak and worthless. So God is saying, no, come before him, humble yourself, go under God's mighty hand. He will help you and deliver you. And then it says, related to this in verse 7, uh, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So it makes sense then that we cast all our worries and anxieties on him. The fact is that we all worry, you know, like about a lot of things during these moments. Um, I don't know, for you, when you are more, more anxious, what do you find yourself doing? Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you, I don't know, escape? Uh, and I just would suggest that there is a link between our anxiety and our pride. God says to bring it before him. Now that takes some humility. To pray, in other words. That act will do wonders if we come before his mighty hand and pray. And then knowing he cares for you. And not just that, 
that he cares for me, but he has the power to deliver me. Whether we do that depends on how much you trust that he knows your needs and how much he can take care of your needs, which is why there is a link between our anxiety, pride, and mistrusting in God's care. So I can be rid of anxieties by my confidence, in other words, that God actually and genuinely cares for me, that I am never alone, that I am never not regarded with care and consideration by the chief shepherd who went before me and who calls me today and who watches over me. Now, what a comforting and motivating and inspiring thought. So do you trust that God cares for you about every area of your life, about school, finances, family, marriage, some difficulty that you're enduring in some relationship, some sickness, some even death? The answer is, of course, he cares. So we can alleviate all such worries by casting all our anxieties on him, saying cognitively, you know, I'm not God, he's in control, and he cares about my situation. I think that will not only help us, uh, but it will end up releasing us from often these dark and unproductive thoughts, which will lead to eventually greater uh, availability to minister to others. Verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to de devour. Now, the word sober-minded here is this literally means well-balanced. Don't lose your head. In other words, it seems that Satan can't get far with anyone who refuses to panic or freak out or just become emotional. Now, that's a lot of us, right? We struggle with just controlling our emotional response. And it stems from fear and anxiety. Uh, and this is the fertile ground for Satan. And this leads to being devoured. Uh, you know, it says here that he's an adversary, but it's not just any adversary. It says he's your adversary. Um, so in other words, he is a, he's personal. He is against me and you. He knows, in other words, our weaknesses and patterns. He's not going to show up then in an area of your strength. Like, for example, if you have a good self-image and he tries to introduce thoughts, that you are lame. He knows that's not going to work for all those of you who have good self-images, but maybe you're ambitious. He will capitalize on that and try to defeat you in that way. So remember, he wants, Satan that is, wants us to miss God, to disobey God, to lose my balance, to not be watchful. So Peter's advice is in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. Now the word resist is defensive. Uh, it's, it's, it's to not go slay that lion, just stand there and resist him. It's like walruses against polar bears. I don't know why that imagery came to mind. You know, these walruses with the tusks just has to lay there and then just bear his tusks. So basically, that's how you have to fight Satan, Peter is saying. You just got to remain standing. And the power of just letting the attacks come, but still standing firm and resisting, yeah, that's going to lead to overcoming Satan's temptation. So being devoured by the devil, then, on the flip side, is just giving in. And what that looks like is giving into, you fill in the blank, giving into my fears, or on a more specific level, practical level, my comfort, my wealth, my security, uh, sexual desires, uh, entertainment. And so I want to ask all of you, how are you doing on this? Are you putting up any resistance? And by that, I mean, you stand there. And of course, I'm not saying literally you stand there, but it's through the word, through prayer, leaning on the church, using the spiritual resources available to us. So Peter says, resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we need to remind ourselves that we are not alone. People out there are resisting temptation, fighting against their emotions in the same way. So stand strong. So it helps then if you are tied to a community of believers. It's why the church is important. So if you're alone, how much harder is that? I mean, I have peers now from all over, from West Coast, Midwest, and beyond, and uh, just think about them. And I also think about missionaries overseas for Boston. I think about Makoto, who is now in Japan. And so we must claim people, claim Christians, own them, and let that give you strength to resist. So right now, turn to your neighbor and say, resist. You are not alone. All right, I hope that was an encouraging word. So finally, in verse 10, it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So it's encouraging. We, we resist uh, knowing this won't last. It says it's for a little while. The suffering, in other words, which is always so scary, suffering as you try to live for Christ, it's immediate but it's really for a little while. We will suffer following Christ, suffer persecution, uh, suffer the, the naysayers saying, what, are you, what kind of life are you living? But there is an after. And after you have suffered a little while, he will himself restore you. That means you'll get pretty bruised up uh, at, in trying to resist the devil and trying to live for him, but his grace and it will strengthen you. And so Peter ends his letter saying, stand firm in the true grace of God. Peter would be really an expert on this, right? From his own testimony. And it's this note in which I want to land. Ultimately, what will enable us to stand firm? It's the grace of God. That he has saved me, restored me, summoned me to be his shepherd. Whether I fail or not is not the point. What is the greater point? is that I am the recipient of God's amazing grace. And when I return to that, I will experience joy and strengthening of my faith and an ability to shepherd beyond what I think is possible. So let's stand firm in the grace of God. Amen.
So that's it. And let's pray right now. Dear Lord, I just lift up uh, ourselves to you. Lord, we recognize that we are frail and weak, but we are so thankful that as we humble ourselves before you, that uh, under your mighty hand, that we have a shepherd, a chief shepherd who cares for us and loves us, uh, will strengthen us and ennoble us. Lord, may this knowledge enable us to stand firm and resist all of Satan's temptations. Lord, I pray for all of the people out there, especially as this is summer, it's a time ripe for temptation. Lord, I pray that we would uh, stay faithful to you and to each other, remembering all the brothers and sisters around the world are trying to do the same. And so, Lord, may we be given the courage uh, and, and confidence in you to stand. Uh, thank you so much for your grace. Lord, may we go back to it again and again so that we may experience whatever challenges that come our way. We praise you. We give you all glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so that is it. And hope everyone is going to stand firm out there and see you next time.